Well, please have your Bible open in 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. We're going to see this morning, through the words of the Apostle Paul, that God works in our weakness. But first, let's just recap a little. It's been about a month since we've been in 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church uh, with two main aims. First of all, he's defending his own ministry amongst them, which has come under great threat. People are trying to discredit Paul completely as a gospel minister. And Paul's concern is not so much for his own personal reputation, but rather that by discrediting his ministry, the gospel that he preached will be discredited and the Jesus that he preached will be discredited. That's more his concern. He has this great heartache for churches to remain in the truth. But he's also speaking out against those false teachers who've come into the Corinthian church and who are producing this in these believers. And he is pointing out their error and he is showing the many different ways in which they are not true gospel preachers and demonstrating within his own life that which makes a true gospel preacher. They're the two main issues that Paul is addressing. And in the opening part of um, this chapter, in verses 1 to 6, I spoke last time under the heading, Don't Be Gullible. And Paul begins to use quite a lot of irony in this chapter. Sometimes we might even say, He's being a bit sarcastic, but he's resorting to methods of speech because this is such a serious issue and the Corinthians are being so slow to to heed the warnings that he's being given. He really has to start to speak very, very directly to them. He says to them, oh, that you would bear with me in a little bit of folly. People have been calling him a pathetic old fool. Okay, well, bear with this pathetic old fool for a while. Humor me. Give me a hearing. You've been told I'm not worth listening to. Well, just please listen to me this once. Of course, the irony is that they've already been giving themselves to these false teachers. And Paul puts himself in the place of a father who's betrothed his daughter to the very best bridegroom that he could ever imagine his daughter to be with. His daughter's the Corinthian church. The bridegroom is Christ. And Paul's great fear is that just as Eve was tempted by Satan in the garden, the church is being tempted to turn her back on her betrothed. By his craftiness, Satan is seeking to deceive these Corinthian believers into going after another bridegroom, another type of Christ corrupting their minds, exchanging gospel truth for a counterfeit gospel. They use the name Jesus, but he's not the Jesus I preach to you. It sounds like the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. The frightening thing here is that these false teachers have come in. They're switching bridegrooms on the church, the true one for a false one, and the Corinthian church haven't even noticed that it's happening. These false teachers are using all the same kinds of words, but a great deception is taking place. 
And the problem is that, as happened in the Corinthian church, too many churches today pay too little attention to what is being taught, to what the preacher is actually teaching. And instead, it's all become about how the message is packaged. And people go out of a church because they've had a fantastic experience, but they've never once paused to ask themselves, what actually has just been taught? What have I actually, if anything, just learned? As long as the packaging impresses, you'll be astonished what churches can put up with. You must not allow how the message is packaged to become more important than the message itself. As I said, this is not an excuse or a mandate for poor preaching. But we must, as listeners, get our priorities right. I quoted Phil Arthur, who some of you will know, he's a retired Baptist minister up in Lancaster. He said this, the man who has nothing to say, but says it with grace and skill, is still a man with nothing to say. And then we saw from verses 7 to 12, the best command the biggest fee. Because the Corinthian church, through these false teachers, were being encouraged to embrace the culture of the day. There were these great philosophical orators who would go around in the same way that you might go to a concert. People would gather and pay money to hear these men speaking. And the better you were at speaking, the bigger the fee you could command. The more popular you were, the bigger the fee you could command. And this kind of thinking is entering the church. And people are saying, that Paul, he came and spoke amongst you for free. So he can't be worth very much. He can't have had much to say if he came for free. That's not how things work. There's some very wrong and muddled thinking going on in Corinth. Wrong and muddled thinking can easily enter churches. Paul explains that he chooses to work like this so that he is not like these super apostles. And more to the point, they are not like him. And we also saw this very stark warning in verses 13 to 15, that actually Satan can come into a church and be at work in a church and the believers not even realise it's happened. That's a really stark warning, isn't it? Some of the most startling and sobering words in the whole of the New Testament, surely, for us as Christians. Satan can be at work in a church deceiving its members and they don't even realise that's not to say that those who are true believers are going to lose their faith through it because we believe all believers are safe in Christ. But as a church, collectively, you can be deceived. And much of it can be the work of the devil. Wow. And churches can fall for it. Wow. Satan's not stupid, you know. He doesn't come into churches and announce himself, Hi, I'm the devil, give me a hearing. 
He comes in as an angel of light, even with a Bible in his hand. Be careful. We can be much more gullible than we realize, you know. The thing about deception, of course, is that it pretends to be the truth. That's what makes it deception. A lie is a falsehood presented as truth. And that's often Satan's strategy. He's the father of lies, so we need to be careful. And we have this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church who've been taken in by some of these things. And we can use it as a great warning for ourselves. And so we pick it up at verse 16. And Paul is largely continuing along the same kind of theme. He's going to continue to speak to them with some degree of irony. And at times it might come across to us as with some degree of sarcasm as well. In order to get his message across to them. So let's start at verse 16 and look at the opening few verses through to verse 21. Um, and basically what Paul is saying here is, let me deviate from my normal method. Paul was normally a pretty straight-talking gospel preacher. But he's going to talk in a slightly different way for a short time to get his message across to them. I'm really not what these false teachers say I am, but permit me for a moment to embrace their way of thinking and to embrace their way of talking, just for a moment. These false teachers were boastful men. They would present letters of commendation to churches. We've read about that earlier in the letter. And these letters of commendation will be overflowing with praise about their many accomplishments. They've adopted the culture of these Greek philosophers, a group of men known as sophists. They became skilled public orators. All of their supposed success as preachers was being assessed and judged in precisely the same manner as these Greek orators. It was all about the way the message was being packaged it was all about the oratorical skill of the preacher and how impressive he was. It was about the man more than the message. Look at his appearance. Listen to that voice. Oh, those lines of argument he used. Do you see what powers of reason he has? It's all about the man. They thought that made a good preacher. Well, a good preacher can be those things, but those things don't make a good preacher necessarily. Okay, Paul is saying, from verses 16 to 21, permit me for a moment to, to play them at their own game. If it boils down to what you have to boast about, let me take up the challenge of boasting and see what you make of it. Verse 17, this is not how I've learned preaching from the Lord. I'm just digressing for a moment. This is not authority from the Lord for others to follow what I'm about to do. Don't take this as a pattern for yourselves. This is just for now 
in order to deal with this particular issue, then I'll be getting back to regular gospel preaching. This is the game they play, verse 18. Permit me to play along with them just for a moment. I'm sure Paul probably felt quite uneasy about this. Perhaps he had to pause and think whether he would actually follow this line of argument for a while. But realise that perhaps this might be the only way they're really going to understand and I can get the message across to them. There's more irony, even sarcasm in verses 19 and 20. You put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are so wise. They've thought they've been doing great with all of these false teachers they've been accepting. They've only been exposing their foolishness. You've believed yourself to be very wise when in fact you've been entertaining fools and become fools yourselves. Well, in that case, you'll have no problem entertaining another one, will you? You've been so well and truly deceived already, you haven't realised that the things these men have been teaching have been enslaving you in falsehood. You haven't realised that these men have been devouring your souls for their own gain and reputation exalting themselves and despising you and you haven't realised that's been going on. Uh, you see there, it mentions being striked on the face. Even if one of them strikes you on the face, might seem a bit strange. In the last decade, there has been a particular preacher in the USA who became infamous, notorious for kicking people in whatever part of their body required healing. Now, I'm serious. He kicked them wearing big boots. He did it on the platform. He did it in the name of Jesus, supposedly to heal them. Can Christians be that gullible? Apparently they can. Apparently they can. He was given the nickname Boom Boom. What kind of preacher is that? But churches fell for it. That's what Satan can accomplish in a church if the church lets, it guard, lets its guard down. You in your great strength of wisdom, he says to the Corinthian church, you've fallen for it. But we didn't fall for it. We, in all of our weakness, me, pathetic, puny, old Paul, I didn't fall for it. In all of my weakness, more irony. Paul lays it on really thick. Now this kind of language really is most uncharacteristic of Paul. Do you remember how once he said, I will become all things to all men for the cause of the gospel? I actually believe this is an example of that. 
right, this is the only kind of language you're going to understand right now, so let me speak it to get my message through to you. So that's the first part. And then from verse 22, let me astonish you by the things that I'm going to boast in. You've heard about the boasting of these men. You know what these false teachers are boasting in. You know know the kind of things that they are saying are the proof of God's blessing. Listen to what I have to say. Well, he begins in verse 22 by saying, we do have some things in common. He'll admit this much. These false teachers are obviously Jewish converts, if they're converted at all, but they are Jews, just like Paul. We're all as Jewish as one another. We're all descendants of Abraham. We all have Abraham's blood in our veins. We've got that much in common. But there the similarities end. Are they Christ's ministers? That's what they claim to be. I'm in an altogether different category to them, says Paul. I am so much more than they are. Now, this isn't the kind of uh, wrong self-promotion that you might think it is. You might think that in making this claim, Paul is trying to elevate himself as this as if this somehow is all his own achievement but of course we can't think that for a moment in his earlier letter in 1 Corinthians and in chapter 15 Paul actually acknowledges himself to be the least of the apostles I'm the one that used to go around persecuting the church after all Paul is only the greater minister of Christ because that is what Christ himself has made Paul to be And Paul is the first person to acknowledge that. But when it comes to labouring for the gospel, because the gospel requires labour, there's no one who's worked harder than me, says Paul. There's no one who's travelled further. There's no one who's put themselves through more than I have. Can these super apostles boast about the kind of things that I'm about to boast in? Line me up alongside these other men. Turn us around so that our backs are facing you. Lift up the back of our shirts and inspect our backs. Count the scars. The scars on my back will be more than all of these others put together if they have any. And each one of those scars are the result of my ministry and my preaching. That's my boast. How do these other guys measure up? Contact the authorities. Ask them to check their records. Whose mugshot do they have more copies of for every arrest that's taken place? Paul's, he's saying. How many prison cells have they been in compared to me? How many times have they been convinced they've just preached their last sermon and are about to die? These are the things that I boast in. This is gospel ministry. Look at verse 24. 40 stripes minus 1 
isn't just a quaint way of saying 39. Paul knew the word for the number 39. He said 40 minus 1 deliberately. The sentence for those floggings was 40 lashes with a three-corded leather whip. However, because the Jewish authorities, because this is a Jewish punishment administered by Jewish authorities against a fellow Jew, they never wanted to be accused of overstepping the mark or of being too severe by giving too many strikes of the whip. So they stopped at 39 just in case they'd made a mistake in their counting. But the sentence was 40 lashes. But they stopped one short. How very kind. 39 lashes of the whip. Your back was ripped open. Some people died from the trauma before they got to 39. Goodness knows how many weeks or even months it took to recover from each one. If you had been through one of those floggings, one thing would be certain. You would give anything, do anything, give up anything, say anything not to have to go through that again. Whatever it was that Paul had done the first time he endured it, he went straight back out and carried on. That's remarkable. And then he did it again after the second time. And then after the third. And then after the fourth. And then after the fifth. And in between all that, he was beaten with rods. That was a Roman punishment. He had that three times. On one occasion, he was stoned with stones. You're placed in a hole in the ground with your hands tied behind your back so you cannot raise your hands to defend yourself. And they throw lumps of rock at your head until you're dead. And they left Paul there thinking they had killed him. And he carried on preaching. That's my boast, says Paul. How are these guys measuring up? This is gospel ministry, says Paul. Well, he hasn't finished yet, has he? He was shipwrecked three times. On one occasion, he was adrift in the sea for a whole, a whole night and a whole day. Constantly travelling always in danger wherever he went. Amongst fellow Jews, in danger. Amongst Gentiles, in danger. In the city, in danger. Escaped to the country, still in danger. Weary. Deprived of sleep. Going without food or water for days at a time. Often resorting to fasting in prayer. 
Such were the depths of his turmoil before the Lord. Cold and naked in prison cells. That's not the whole list, he says in verse 28. There's more besides. And then, on top of all that physical stuff, there's this burden in my heart for churches like you. And actually, that's the greatest burden I carry of all. It struck me going over these things again. Here is young Saul of Tarsus. He's a young, intelligent, rational, well-educated man. A man full of zeal in persecuting these people of the way, who are getting in the way. And Paul's going to get them out of the way. And he's making a great name and reputation for himself amongst his own kind as he does it. It's going to take something pretty spectacular for him to give up all that. He must have been totally convinced of his encounter with the risen Jesus Christ for him to endure all that he endured. Mustn't he? Must he not have been totally convinced in the risen Christ? Must he not have been absolutely certain that he was not in the slightest deluded about what had happened on the Damascus road? If he had had any doubts at all, those first 39 lashes would have been enough for him to turn around and change his mind and go back to Jerusalem. But on and on he went for the saviour he loved and for the God he served. A saviour who loved him so much that he himself was prepared to die for him in the most horrendous circumstances. The saviour who met him and called him and commissioned him. And on and on Paul went. And this Jesus... And the future hope that Paul has in Christ. It's worth every single scar, says Paul. That's my boast. How are these other guys stacking up against that? If I have to resort to boasting, that's it. Let me ask you, which of you feel weak as a Christian? Paul has felt weaker than you all. Paul has known weaknesses like you'd never believe. And he says, when I see these imposters in pulpits... Causing the Lord's people to stumble. He's filled with fury. Verse 27 that is. There was that time when I was in danger in Damascus. The closing verses of the chapter. And I escaped 
how did I escape? Do I have some fantastic, miraculous story to tell you? Some great miracle that God worked? Did we pray and the building shook and there were all manners of signs of wonders done by the Holy Spirit? No. I got in a basket, climbed out the window, they let me down the wall and I ran away. Their boast is all their great miracles, how God is using them for this and that. Their boast is all their great successes, their great reputation, the waiting list of churches who want them to go and preach in their pulpits too. All I can tell you about is the hardships that I've endured for the Christ who died for me. That's my boast. Finally, he says, let me tell you that God works through weakness. Verse 30. God works through weakness. If I must boast, I will boast in the things which, which concern my infirmity. Because in all those things, God has been at work. Through all of those things, God has been pleased to bless my gospel ministry and build churches and establish churches. You see, God's ways are not the ways of the world. This is one of the hardest lessons for Christians to understand. It's one of the hardest things to get into our tiny, silly little minds. God's ways are not the ways of the world. They never have been, they never will be. The world's way is to have strength, to achieve, to be successful, to make something of yourself, to be popular, esteemed, to have lots of admiring friends. So, to be a successful church, a church has to have strength, known for its great achievements, popular, esteemed by others. But you... You feel weak and helpless. Well, if you're like me, you do, you, that's how you feel so often. You feel weak and you feel helpless. You struggle every day. Don't you? As a Christian. You struggle to pray. You struggle to spend as much time reading your Bible as you should. You struggle at home. You struggle to be the parent or child that you know you should be. You struggle at work. You struggle in school. You struggle to be the Christian you know God wants you to be. And your heart aches because you know you let him down day after day. So often you feel lonely and isolated. And too easily you decide you're, you're of no use to God whatsoever. And yet we've just discovered together on the page of Scripture that actually it's weak and battered Christians just like you and me, just like the Apostle Paul, who God is pleased to use to do his work. He takes your weak and feeble efforts and mine and then he works by his limitless power and by his limitless grace. 
When 90-year-old Sarah heard that she was to have a child, she laughed. But all through the Old Testament, we read that Israel's God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God works in our weakness. Gideon protested to God. I am the weakest man from the smallest and weakest tribe in Israel. He was convinced that even the 32,000 men that he had available to him would not be enough. But God said, no, that's far too many. And he ended up with just 300. And God defeated the Midianite army so that Israel could not claim the glory for themselves. The Philistine champion bellowed his defiance across the valley and laughed at the adolescent who dared to challenge him with a few stones and a slingshot. Goliath wasn't laughing for long. How on earth are we going to defeat a city like Jericho? March around it 13 times, shout in my name and blow your trumpets and leave the rest to me. The people of Jericho thought it was hilarious. But God soon wiped the smiles off their faces too. One man stood on Mount Carmel against the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. But one Elijah, with faith in God, was all that God needed. And an unknown couple from backwater Nazareth, with only an animal feeding trough for a cradle, would provide the setting for a baby who himself would just be the carpenter's son from Nazareth, who would die a death of shame and abject humility at the age of 33. God uses the weak things of the world to accomplish his works and to shame and confound the wise. When you are weak and as you come to Christ, confessing your sin, seeking his help, asking for his grace, because you know like never before that long ago you exhausted all of your own resources, that's when you will find yourself in the same place that the Apostle Paul found himself over and over again. And in your weakness, that's when God will keep you. And that's when God will use you. So that all will see. It can only be of God. And he receives all the glory. Because he is your strength when you are weak. He produces fruit from your labours, not you. 
because that's how God works. 